80 degrees. We were wearing our shorts and sandals. And we got to my in-laws in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and it began to snow. And my kids think that it's Christmas. <laughs> so, um, and I know some of you are maybe from Wisconsin, Minnesota. We're headed there at the end of the week. I lived there for many years, 15 years. And I hear they got over 18 inches in some places. So bless you all. Um, so I'm excited to be here. And uh, I love the Midwest. And it's great to be here with all of you talking about my favorite topics. So how does one get to the point of talking about generational trends? I mean, this isn't something you wake up when you're five and say, someday when I'm older, I want to study generational trends, right? Well, I was a missionary kid. I grew up in Mexico, spent 10 years of my life there, uh, then went to North Central University, a small Christian college in Minneapolis, uh, graduated, went on staff at a, a small church plant, served there for several years, then ended back um, at the university as a staff and later a faculty member. And it was while I was in those experiences on staff at church and then also later working in the university that God really gave me a heart for the next generation. I watched young people coming to the university, passionate about God, feeling like they had a call from God on their lives to do something in ministry. They would serve for several years, graduate, start internships, start their first ministry position, and often become disillusioned become frustrated. Many of them walked away from ministry. Some were walking away from their faith altogether, working at Home Depot or Starbucks with a degree in theology or pastoral studies. And I was like, this is not okay. What is going on? Why is there this disconnect that's occurring? We want these young people who are passionate about God to thrive serving God, right? So as I was doing my doctorate, um, I ended up doing my dissertation, studying millennials in ministry context, talking to young people who were working in local churches, who were attending local churches, who were serving in missions overseas, who were working in faith-based nonprofits. What, what do you feel about the church in America today? <laughs> what do you feel about faith? What do you feel about ministry? And so that's kind of propelled me into this journey of speaking, researching, talking about the next generation. I married a military man, and that ended my career at the university full-time because the Army dictated where we lived. So God began to open doors for me. I continue to teach online, but God's been opening doors for me to travel and do consulting and speaking on this topic across the country. And I just got back from Cambodia and Mexico and Indonesia, so it's very fun to see how God's moving throughout the world. Because here's the thing, sometimes when you read the news, anybody read the news and occasionally feel a little discouraged? <laughs> Maybe, okay? Or you look at a social media feed and you're like, what is happening to the world, right? For every 1,000 churches in America that are planted, 4,000 close their doors. When we start to look at the statistics of Generation Z, which is 22 and younger, are more likely to call themselves atheist than any other generation. You start to look at these statistics and it can feel kind of discouraging. Right? You can read the news and you can get kind of discouraged. But do you know what? We are people of hope. Amen? Amen? We have hope because our God is never sleeping. And our God is never surprised by cultural trends. And our God always has a plan. And so our job is to say, what is his plan in this season of history and how do we tap into it? I heard some of you got to hear about the American Baptist Church's history earlier today. And I am one of those nerds who loves history. So I'm going to take 
<laughs> you too, Greg? Okay. So I'm going to take a lot of boring history and condense it down for about five minutes. I'm going to ask you guys to listen to a mini history lesson. And then we're going to jump into more of um, kind of how it's affecting cultural trends. The way I often present on this topic is to start with what I call the 40,000 foot view. Okay, so we're going to go way up in the sky. When you look down, my girls say it looks like a map, right? When you're in the airplane, the ground looks like a map. So we're going to get a map, kind of an understanding of the territory that we're navigating. And over the next couple of days, we'll work down closer to the ground until we get down in the weeds a little bit more. What does this mean for us practically in our ministry context as we're interacting with young people, older people, um, just people around us in our culture today? So bear with me. Tonight, we're going to kind of do the big picture, but tomorrow and Wednesday, We'll get um, down a little bit more into the specifics. So when we think about culture, I grew up in Mexico, like I said. And so when you think about culture, you often think of the things that you can see that are different from your culture or other cultures. So we think of things of like dress, how people dress. We think of things like food. We think about um, you know, the way customs, how we express ourselves, those kinds of things. In churches, when we think about cultures, we often think about like music, right? Or the way that we preach, those types of things. So the things that you can see, they're tangible, but they're really the top of an iceberg. What really makes cultures different from one another is what's under the iceberg. So these are the things that are the values, the norms, the beliefs that drive the other things. And this is where the real conflict occurs is at this level. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about that level. What's happening in our culture right now under the iceberg, <laughs> under the water, deep down? What we see when we look at history, here goes a little history lesson. If you don't like history, just zone out for five minutes and then come back, OK? <laughs> but here's what we see when we look at history. Every couple hundred years, civilizations undergo major shifts in how they view the world and interact with one another. So if we look back a couple hundred years, just in Western civilization, but this happens in all civilizations, but in Western civilization, if you go back a couple hundred years, we have this little thing called the Age of Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. And out of that came a country called America. <laughs> so what's significant about this is that our country has never undergone a significant cultural upheaval because we were birthed out of the last one, okay? If you go back a couple hundred years before that, there's this little thing called the European Renaissance that propelled us out of the Middle Ages. And there was this little thing called the printing press, you know, which created books. So these were times of significant change. Most cultural experts and historians say that today we're sitting on a similar season of transition. Peter Drucker says that every few hundred years in Western history, there occurs a sharp transformation. Society rearranges itself. Its worldview, its basic values, its social and political structure, its arts, its key institutions, and we are currently living through just such a transformation. And everyone goes, yay, I love change, right? <laughs> OK, everything in our culture is being shaken right now. Because at the very foundation, the values in our identity are being called into question in this current transformation. And so it, as we understand that, it will help us Think about generations and why they view the world differently. Because millennials and Generation Z represent the new cultural norms. Since they were born, many of them have been exposed through education, through media, through technology, just through popular culture to the values 
of the new culture that's emerging and unfolding. As a result, I call them postmodern natives because the modern era has ended. We now have a new era, who knows what it's going to be called, so postmodern it is for now. They're also digital natives. The first cohorts to grow up with technology at their fingertips all of the time, especially Generation Z. And they are global citizens. They do not view themselves just simply in the context of their own local environment. So there's significant things that have occurred in the past 20 to 30 years as we've transitioned that are causing millennials and Generation Z, not all of them, but the majority of them, to have a whole different worldview than older generations. So I'm going to just walk through some of these changes. What does it mean to move from the modern era to this unfolding era that we'll call postmodern for now, okay? What does the actual transition look like, and how does it affect us as we preach, as we teach, as we mentor, as we engage younger people or older people? What are the values that are at stake? Modernism, coming out of the Age of Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, was really built on facts, logic, and reason. We had the Age of Reason, the Scientific Revolution, that made those things sacred. If you could prove it, it was true. That's how we determine something was proved. It affects even our apologetic, right? We have things like the Truth Project, Four Spiritual Laws, the Romans Road, things that were very logical and structured and took you through a series of things to come to a logical conclusion that God was real and existed. And this has affected every part of our society. When we listen to the courtroom, you would hear lawyers arguing logically, right, for their client. But now we have shifted to a new way of making decisions. We now make decisions based on emotion, story, and experience. You see this in advertising, right? We don't explain always all the reasons behind things. We put a very um, emotionally gripping story or picture on the screen. Um, we see this in the courtroom where we're using people's testimony that's very moving to move a jury instead of a logical argument. And with our faith, often what young people are looking for is that experience. What is your experience of faith? What is your story of faith? Does faith, is faith going to grip me at the heart level, not just at the mind level? And often we've been so accustomed to sharing the faith in a way that makes sense, right? Sermons that are logical and straightforward and give reasons. And young people are like, but I want to hear what it means in your life. Tell me the story of your life and your experience with faith. Okay, and, um, this was post-truth, was the word of the year, Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year in 2016. It means relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotional, emotion and personal belief. Post, belonging to a time in which the specified concept has become unimportant. Whew. Sink, let that sink in for a minute. Truth has become unimportant and irrelevant. That's pretty profound when our job, what we view our job as, is sharing the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, right? Challenging. <laughs> Yes, we're going to get to that. Yes, how do we define what truth is? We're going to get to that in just a minute. Okay, there's a whole different way of defining what is truth now in a postmodern context. And we're going to start to see why it is challenging for young people who have been raised with postmodern mindsets to sometimes grasp truth the way that older generations have grasped it. It doesn't mean that they're not... 
pursuing truth in their own way. But it just means it's going to look different, and sometimes that means our ministry methods have to look a little different as well. Okay, second thing, distance and hierarchy, mechanical and structured environments. Again, think industrial revolution. Okay, we had factories where we literally measured how long it took people to screw a cap on a toothpaste tube, right? <laughs> we measured everything people did. We had factories and we had, um, you know, lines where people were doing specific tasks and we would measure them and orchestrate it so everything was as efficient as possible. And that meant you didn't need to know all of the answers to how this whole car was going to come together. You just need to know how to make your part. And there was someone who was the boss in a corner office or way up there that you never saw or heard from and you didn't even know their name, and they made decisions about your job and your life. Okay? So there was this distance, this power distance that existed in, in our society. Whether it was the professor standing behind the lectern, the boss in the corner office, the president off in Washington, or the minister behind the pulpit, there was this sense of power distance. But then along came this little thing called the internet. Anyone heard of it? Okay. <laughs> Where suddenly a 13-year-old can post on Twitter as easily as the President of the United States. Right? Shoop. Power distance gone. Or I, could have, I can have a doctorate in leadership and write an elaborate article on leadership with all the citations. And a 21-year-old who has no experience with leadership can write a blog post and get more likes and followers than I do. Right? Power distance has gone away. Often it comes across as disrespect or a lack of respect for authority. But it's because young people feel like they have the same access, the same voice, the same information as all of us. I can be teaching a class and my students can Google in five minutes as much information as I learned in 12 years and paid <clears throat> dollars for my education, right? Okay, so how we then approach our leadership and our authority has to change because power distance has changed, hierarchy has changed. What young people want is participation and engagement. They are used to that. They've been choosing on their iPads, right, since they were two years old what game they want to play, when they want to play it, how they want to play it, okay? I mean, I, I study this stuff so my poor girls, you know, they will probably not get to touch an iPad till they're 12 because I study cognitive development <laughs> and the effects of technology. But even as five-year-olds, they tell my husband and I on a regular basis, well, mommy, look it up. Well, mommy, look it up, right? I have a question. They walked into my bedroom the other morning. Mommy, what sound does alpaca make? What? What do parents do before Google? I don't know. So we Googled, what sound does an alpaca make? And they can instantly get an answer to their questions, right? So they're expecting to participate. They're expecting to engage. And sometimes they come onto our teams or into our um, environments, and we're like, you need to pay your dues. After you've been faithful for two years, then we'll let you be on the committee, or we'll let you have a say, right? But they're used to participating immediately, not necessarily waiting to gain that. The world has changed. We've gone from the world that's on top, right? How many of you have seen an image like the one on top in your work, in your church, in your school, somewhere, right? This is how the, how the world has functioned for the last couple hundred years. There's someone at the top, and then there's mid-level managers, and there's people below. But what we're seeing is the world below is the one that's emerging. A networked world that there's a lot of connections, there's people interacting and serving one another. I'm self-employed right now. I'm writing my second book, and um, I actually have 
for four different groups working with me on that book. A marketing consultant, an editor, uh, a um, designer, and um, who's the fourth one? Another one. Okay, but I have four different people who have contracted, and we're, we kind of look like this web. They're talking to each other, I'm talking to myself, you know, much of the time I'm talking to myself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Once in a while I talk to them, this is the problem with being self-employed, you do talk to yourself. So it looks a lot more networked, right? And I'm trying to leverage all my connections to get insight and research and marketing uh, potential and all these things. So the world has changed. General Stanley McChrystal wrote a great book, Team of Teams, it's my favorite leadership book, but he talks about how this is playing out in business, in government, and in the military. In the military, um, you know, we have terrorist networks who are running circles around established militaries. Why? Because they look like that bottom, and our militaries look like the top, right? And so what happens is you get a piece of intelligence, and it has to work its way all the way up the chain of command before someone makes a decision, and then it works all the way down, and someone gets the command, but by that time, they've blown up that target and moved on to two or three more, okay? So um, he says that the speed and interdependence of events in Iraq 2003 and 2004 is what he's referring to here, threatened to overwhelm the time-honored processes and culture we'd built. Okay, talking about the military. But this idea can easily be inserted into business, into government, and into the church. The speed and interdependence of everything happening in our culture is changing so fast that often the time-honored processes and culture and tradition that we've built is being threatened. He says, the familiar pursuit of efficiency must change. Efficiency remains important, but the ability to adapt to complexity and continual change has become imperative. Whew. When I was interviewing the young people for my book, I had a couple of young pastors who said to me, I just understand that I'm going to have to change the way I do things every year or two. He's like, that's just normal to me. I understand that that's the world I live in. And he's like, what I'm struggling is the fact that nothing, I can't, nothing changes, right, in his context where he was. One of the number one burnout reasons for young people in the church, they feel like nothing can change, and it can't change fast enough, and they intuitively sense this urgency. Now, it's a challenge because there's time-honored truths that we represent, right, that we are compelled and entrust it to share. We're not going to change the truths. But how do we make our methods, the way that we do things, adaptable and flexible enough that, they can, that our message doesn't get buried in the change that's happening in this culture, right? So that's going to be our challenge and what we're going to talk about the next couple of days. I love this because uh, Nicholas Carr has done a lot of work. If you're a nerd like me and like to do research, I recommend his books. He talks about how the Internet's affecting our brains and our communication. And what we're finding is that our brains, for the last several hundred years, have been very linear in the way they've taken in information because they were based on books, right? So we don't have brain scans of people in the Middle Ages, but I'm guessing during the period of oral histories, that brains probably look different than they did after the printing press. Because our brains with the printing press were trained to have an introduction, a first point with supporting points, and a second point. Anybody ever written an essay like this, right? A third point supporting facts and a conclusion. And so we, had, we were trained to think linearly. What we're finding now with young people is that their brain scans are showing 
that because they've been taking in information in short burst, they're reading an article and something pops up, they click on it, right? Or they go off on a, they, there's a hyperlink, or there's a sidebar, or another text message pops up. Since they've been exposed to technology since birth, their brains are actually developing differently, and they don't have the same linear way of thinking. Okay, and he just talks about that, that, our, that the brain that we've had in the modern era may soon be yesterday's mind <laughs> or brain. So to think about that, sometimes we ask young people to come in and sit and listen to us talk at them for 45 minutes. That is completely foreign to how their brain is wired. To sit and listen to a linear train of thought for 45 minutes is very difficult to them. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, this is jumping on me. Let's see. Um, okay. So, a couple other things I like to highlight. Determinacy versus indeterminacy. This is often where young people get kind of a bad um, reputation for being, uh, just admit, well, I'm not going to make you confess, but have you ever thought a young person's uncommitted? <laughs> okay? Or not committed? This is where they get this, okay? In the modern era, there was this thing called determinacy where we thought if we did certain things, we would get a certain result. There was a determined end, right? So if I worked really hard at my job, I could get a promotion or I would get a raise. If I paid my mortgage every month, I would have a house. If I paid into a retirement fund or worked for the company, I would get a retirement payout or a pension at some point. So these things felt predictable. But we have to remember, millennials and Gen Z have grown up post 9-11 and now post recession 2008, right? So they grew up in a time where you could be going into your office every day dependably and somebody could fly an airplane into your office building, right? Or you could be saving or have worked 30 years for a company and suddenly the recession hit and they watched parents and grandparents and aunties and uncles get laid off of jobs where they had been faithfully serving for 30 years or lose a house that they had been paying the mortgage on consistently for 12 or 14 or 15 years. So all of a sudden the world feels very unpredictable. Someone could pull out a gun at my school and start shooting. So I need to live for today, because I can't necessarily predict what's going to happen in the future. We're also seeing them invest in relationships and experiences more so than like in, in homes or in um, you know, possessions. A lot of boomers have a lot of possessions. You know, there's a lot of estate sales where I live, you know, as people are downsizing. Millennials are buying tiny houses, right? <laughs> so they want to have an experience. So you can say, well, why are you not working for longer than three, three years at a job? Or why don't you settle down and get married and have a house? You know, I know some parents in the room have thought these things. I want grandbabies. You know, okay? But they're wanting to have those experiences and relationships that no one can take away from them. Okay? And so when they're coming into our churches and onto our teams, sometimes you know, we are like, I don't want to invest in this young person unless I know they're going to stick around. I, I hear that over and over and over again. If I mentor this young person or develop them or pour into them and train them, they're going to be gone in a year or two years. It's very possible they will be. But where are they going to go? Somewhere with the imprint of what you've invested in their life, right? So we almost have to change our mentality when we start to think about this. We can't determine the result. Just because we invest in someone's life doesn't mean that we're going to have them serving faithfully with us for five years or ten years. But they're still a part of the body of Christ, right? So if we invest in them almost like a missionary and then send them out to wherever they go next, 
They're taking what we've invested in them and taking it with them. And that ties in. Uh, that's just important to understand that mindset is not one of not wanting to commit, but it is one of wanting to make sure they're maximizing their time and getting the experiences that they feel are important. Okay, creation versus deconstruction. The modern era was all about building things, new inventions, going to the moon. You know, we've built organizations, denominations, all of these things. But what happened with postmodernism is a cultural shift always pushes back on the weaknesses of the prior culture, right? That's what always happens. So with postmodernism, we're like, okay, well, we've now produced enough food to feed everyone in the world, but people are still starving. And we're producing in ways that are causing diseases we didn't have before. Right? Or we you know, built this big thing, but now how are we sustaining it? So they're starting to question. They want to understand what's going on. Why are we doing the things that we're doing? And what are the unintended consequences? So they've been taught to deconstruct. I mean, literally from the time they're small, they're being taught to question and ask and to understand so that they know what the unintended consequences are going to be. Now, this often comes out in the form of the question, why? <laughs> why are we doing this this way? Why are we doing this this way? Okay? And why comes out as what? To disrespect. We often interpret why as disrespect. Now, there are occasions where why is disrespectful because most of us when we were teenagers or young adults thought that we knew better than the older generation. Anyone want to confess that they did that, okay? <laughs> okay, so why is going to come out as disrespect at times? It's a natural. But at the heart of it, there's also this element that asking why is a responsible thing to do. If I don't ask why, and I just jump into something without asking why, I am being irresponsible with my time and investment. They have so many things that they can do. If a young person wants to go to a church, they just Google churches near me, right? And probably 50 will pop up on their screen. So if they're going to come to your church, or if they're going to invest in your program, or they're going to be mentored by you, they want to know why. Why should I trust you? Why should I believe that this is a good place for me to come? And this, to them, is responsible. Because if they're making this huge decision to go to a church, which we'll talk about later, is countercultural for this generation. They're already making a sacrifice by associating with a church. They are risking being ostracized from their friend group. Okay? They're, Gen Z is the first generation that's experiencing real persecution as Christians in America. Okay, so they're already taking a step of faith to walk into the church building. But then they want to know that if they're going to do that, that they're coming to a church that they can trust. Right? So one of the things we need to do is just embrace the why. I speak to military groups, and so I've done a lot of research on how these things are playing out in the military. My husband is retired Special Forces, so you know, I, got, I, I love the military and hearing him talk about how that plays out. But in the military, we very much have this culture where you just, you know, we give a command and you follow it, right? This does not go over well with millennials, okay? So there's a lot of research coming out about that, and I love a couple of these quotes I'm just going to read, um, because they apply to every context. This gentleman says, some leaders may take offense when subordinates seek clarity on orders. They are missing an opportunity. I find with the younger generation that they are used to asking why. They want to know why. If you can't explain to them why you're doing it, then for crying out loud, don't do it. If you don't know why you're doing it, stop, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay? So sometimes I like to say, millennials are God's accountability to us. 
You know, why? Why are we doing the things that we're doing? Are we doing them because God has clearly been directing us to do it that way recently? Or maybe it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, God told us to do it that way and we haven't checked back in, right? So to make sure that we know why we're doing what we're doing. Answering such questions not only suggests willingness to engage with younger troops or leaders, but it provides them with the need of flexibility should the original order be overcome by events. Without that extra step, when the situation changes, they aren't going to be able to adjust to it because they don't know why they're doing it in the first place. So what they mean by this is that if we give someone an order but we don't explain why, and then the context changes, and that they can't implement that order the way we initially asked them to, they're not going to know how to respond if they don't understand what our purpose is, right? So the whys that the younger generation are asking us, I believe God has put that in them because it's a way of discipling them to a, de a deeper level. Because the world has changed, and I'll talk about this on Wednesday, I really believe that what we're doing right now is raising Daniels to serve in Babylon. But we live in Judah. We were raised in Judah, right? But the change has occurred where our young people are no longer living in Judah. They're living in Babylon. And they're going to lead in Babylon for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Having been raised, and most of us living in Judah, <laughs> we need to be able to engage with them in dialogue about the whys so that they can think, okay, this is the purpose behind this. This is why we do it this way. So that when they show up in Nebuchadnezzar's palace and are faced with the decisions Daniel had, that there is no temple, there are no priests, there is no place to make sacrifices. How do I live out my faith here? Someone had helped Daniel ask the wise and answer them back in Judah. And he understand, I'm not going to eat this food because it violates the law of God. I'm not going to bow to the idol because that's idolatry. I'm not going to, because he understood the purpose. So I think as we help young people answer the whys and delve down into the purposes, we're equipping them for this very challenging context in which they're going to lead. When we concentrate more on the why, more on the vision, and then let them go, they're going to be able to adapt as the situation changes. This one I really love too, okay? He says, another reason to engage is that if millennials don't get an answer from the chain of command or their leaders or their pastors, they're likely to seek one somewhere else. Well, this has always been important. It's just now more people have the ability to ask questions more loudly. They have access to more information that lets them question that why or come up with their own reasons for that why. So essentially what he's saying here is that if we don't answer the whys that young people are asking, they're going to find the answer somewhere, aren't they? They're going to Google it. And we have no control over who they're going to listen to once they Google it. So when they're coming to us with the hard questions, our ability to engage them, we want them to hear the answers from us, right? <laughs> we don't want them hearing them from Google. We want them hearing the answers about God and his truth from us. So embrace those, that deconstruction. Embrace that um, asking of the why. Okay, we've come from a, a society that was very um, individualistic and local in context. So most, many people in America, 50, 40, 50 years ago, grew up in one community, right? We, would, we were born there, we were raised there, we married someone there, we went to church there, we died there, and we're buried there, right? So we were very well known in a local community. Our identity was tied to that local community. And we had an individual sense of who we were in um, responsibility in that context. Young people today are part of a global context. Many of them are best friends with people that they've never even seen. 
I mean, all of us know a young person who's dating someone that they've never met, right, in real life. That they met via video game or online chat room or something. So they are part of a global community, which means that their local identity often looks very different. They're not as concerned with it. And they often are struggling with a sense of identity because so much of who they are is projected via screens, right? So that profile um, that they're developing online. Here are the big ones, though, when we talk about defining truth, okay, which you were just mentioning. Here are the, the deep, deep underlying tectonic plates that are shifting right now, right, that are causing what I call a cult, this cultural or earthquake that's shaking us. Power and faith in human reasoning to determine truth versus power and faith in personal experience. So what happens is we want to share the gospel with a young person or we want to convince them of something, right, that the Bible says is true. If it doesn't match what they've experienced or what they feel, I mean, you're just not going to convince them with the most logical argument that you have. I mean, I've talked to parents and pastors who are buying books and downloading podcasts and everything to convince a young person that something is right. But if they don't feel it and experience it, for most of them, it's not going to change their mind. Under modernism, we put confidence and reason. And under postmodernism, we accept self-determined pluralistic views, which means that every person can have their own point of view and accept it as truth, right? And they're all equal. Okay? So just a couple of great quotes. So to look at how this has kind of changed over history, pre-modern era, people believed in something supernatural. Okay? Almost every civilization in the world believed in a supernatural power. Some people believed in the power of nature, some people in God, some people in God, right? The Jews in God. Um, okay? And so it was very much this belief that there's a higher power that dictates things that are outside of my control, and that was really what dictated our sense of morality. In the modern era, morality, human dignity, truth, and reason rested on the foundations of reason, science, race, other things that we could, that were tangible, that we could prove, that we could demonstrate. Now we're moving into the postmodern era where everything is coming into question. Okay, that deconstruction is applying to every aspect of our life. We're asking why, 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 why? Everything is suspect and there are no universal foundations for truth, morality, or human dignity. So Friedrich Nietzsche, he really sums it up well when he says, you have your way, I have my way. As for the right way, the correct way, the only way, it does not exist. Okay, is anyone feeling discouraged? <laughs> I just want to read a, a scripture that I believe just is so um, relevant. As I just want to pause right here and insert this because I think it's so relevant here. Here's what I think God is using when God shakes, when cultural, cultural shaking occurs, God's always doing something in the middle of it, right? And I think the challenge for those of us who are leaders, parents, teachers, pastors, is that we have often had the role of convincing people, right? Or teaching them truth based on reason, logic, and whatnot. And for me, at least, one of the things God has really been convicting me of is that I often put on the hat of Savior, right? Let me save you. Let me teach you. Let me convince you. And I think that there's an element of us that has started to like rely on our Romans Road or Four Gospel Truths or our Truth Project or our Sunday School curriculum or 
whatever it is to convince people of truth. And I believe God's bringing us back to this truth in John 16, where Jesus says in John 16, verse 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Here's what gets me so excited about what's happening right now. Because when we look at this, this feels pretty daunting. How in the world do we teach truth to this next generation when they don't even believe that truth exists? It's not our job. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Right? Thank you, Lord. It is not our job. What is our job is to make sure that we're on our faces before the Lord, right? To make sure that we're hearing from the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit, he says, he will guide you into all truth. What what is the way that we convey truth to this generation today? How is the Holy Spirit moving in the hearts and minds of this generation? And how do we tap in to what he's already doing? Here's the thing. Paul was really good at logic and reason, right? I mean, Paul was great at that. Jesus was really good at emotion and experience. Have you noticed that? I love this because it allows for every cultural trend. Amen? Amen. So what we have to do as leaders who have faithfully served in one cultural context, using the methods that were applicable and relevant to that cultural context, understand that God is moving us into a new season. So how do we tap into what the Holy Spirit's doing in this new generation where they may have their way, but it feels really empty and lonely and depressing? Amen? And to show them a better way. Okay. Just a couple other quotes. Um, The postmodern view is that every individual's beliefs, values, lifestyle, and perception of truth claims are equal. There's no hierarchy of truth. Your beliefs and my beliefs are equal, and all truth is relative. So what I believe is happening today is what I like to say the highest form of idolatry. Because in the past, we worshiped supernatural beings or reason and science, but something outside of ourselves, right? But what's happening today is literally we are declaring ourselves the determiners of truth, which makes us what? gods. We literally are not humbling ourselves to anything externally. We are making ourselves gods. Um, So to understand the insidious nature of this, and what's happening though is it's, it's kids are learning this from a very, very young age without even understanding it, okay? University of professor, our University of California professor says truth is produced, not found, okay? Economics high school book, no right or wrong answer exists when values are at stake. Okay, these things are coming in our curriculum. Yeah? If you ask the millennial, is there any absolute good or evil? Mm-hmm. Probably they would say no. And yet, if you ask the same millennial, was what happened in the Parkland shooting mm-hmm. evil? Mm-hmm. They would probably say yes. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. in dealing with experiences, mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yes, you're absolutely right. Be, yeah, go ahead. As a millennial, with all due respect, you're looking at this from an enlightened point of view. Mm-hmm. The thing that truth does not risk is relationship. And this is killing me sitting here. Truth, truth, mm-hmm. truth, truth. Jesus was about relationship. 
Yes, amen. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. Because when we're coming down out of the clouds, lower to the ground, we're going to get into the essential nature of the relationship as we engage them. And you're absolutely right. When you can sit down and ask those questions, but you've built a relationship with them, they know, they know that you care about them, they know that you love them, there's now a context in which to have that conversation and to start pushing on some of those questions. Yep. So, um, tolerance is the virtue of a man without convictions. Here's what's happening. Um, tolerance is a beautiful, beautiful thing, as it has been defined traditionally, okay? Because it teaches us to understand and respect people with other points of views, right? To be able to live together, understanding you might have a different point of view than I do, you might have a different point of view than I do, but I still respect you, I understand your point of view, and we're going to live together in harmony. How tolerance is being taught today, though, in the public schools is that you must, well, in all of our culture, is that you must not just understand and respect, but you have to affirm and accept, okay? So you have to affirm and accept every point of view. Now, this gives me so much grace and mercy as I'm interacting with teenagers, okay, to understand this. Because the incredible pressure that young people are on, tolerance is the highest virtue in our culture today, the highest. To be said, be told that you're intolerant is like the worst thing that can be said of you. Um, so, as young people are trying to develop a sense of identity and conviction, while at the same time affirming and accepting every point of view, you understand how that's an impossibility, right? <laughs> I can't accept and affirm every point of view and still hold one as what is right, true, right? Because if I, the minute I say this is my conviction, if it contradicts your conviction, I've now become intolerant. Whew. So young people today are navigating a very precarious situation. I actually did a panel um, with some young people at an event similar to this a couple of weeks ago. And there was a young man who was 16 years old, sharp, 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 sharp. He is a pastor's son. He's involved in the church. He wants to serve God. He wants to, you know, serve the Lord. But he's sitting there on the platform saying, I cannot tell anyone that I come to this church. I cannot post on social media that I come to this church because the minute that I do, I will be lumped in with a group that they view as intolerant, right? And I will be ostracized. I will instantly lose all of my friends and all of my credibility. So these are, this is what young people, so looking at him as an exer, I would say, well, you're not being very faithful and committed to your faith. You show up here on Sundays and worship God, but then you go out and you won't even say that you go to church. I never experienced what he's experiencing as a 16-year-old, right? So to very much like let, let this sink in what young people are facing today. As we're mentoring them and teaching them, being able to understand that context can be very helpful. Truth has ceased to be a relationship between a statement and reality and has become a judgment. So if I say this is the truth and you disagree with it, I'm now a judgmental person, right? It's kind of how it's playing out. Yes, sir. Oh, yes. Yes. Yes, the ones who are experiencing the intolerance can define it. I mean, there is, it's okay to be, you know, we're, we're tolerant of everything except those who are intolerant, right? <laughs> so, yes. The young people who are experiencing the intolerance, yes, not the ones who are necessarily, not the other way, yeah.
Okay. During World War I, the Anabaptists who were, before World War I, during the Anabaptists were church, traditionally peace church. Mm -hmm. They knew that something was going to come down the pike where their belief in the peace mm -hmm. movement were to become persecuted. And actually, mm -hmm. they were in World War I, mm -hmm. hugely. Mm -hmm. So what they did is they had the book called The Martyr's Mirror translated from German into English and insisted that their young people and how the young people, they related stories from the martyr's mirror mm -hmm. to let them realize the Christian journey mm -hmm. does include persecution. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. better be ready for it and still be loving mm -hmm. and compassionate towards everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're right on. And I mean, we're, I'm going to actually talk about this on Wednesday morning because I think in America, we, you know, we have this wonder, we've, we've had the privilege of living in this wonderful time of religious freedom, you know, now, it's not been perfect. It's been messy in some ways. But compared to the rest of the world throughout history, <laughs> it's been pretty amazing. But I think that in some ways, we begin to think that that's normal. And that's not normal. I mean, the Bible says over and over again, you will be persecuted. You will be hated. You will, be, you know, you will experience trials and tribulations. And so I think as we're mentoring young people today, we need to maybe talk differently. We often uh, talk a lot about our rights. Um, when we said, Lord, I serve you, we took up our cross and denied ourselves, right? So it doesn't matter that we're an American, because sometimes we say we're an American Christian and we put American first and Christian second, right? We're Christians who happen to be Americans. Yes. And so I think if we can expect that people are going to hate us and persecute us, you know, I think that's a beautiful example. And we can help build that into our young people, that resilience. What do you do when people hate you? What do you do when people persecute you? you know? And that's where, going back to the story of Daniel, which we're going to talk about on Wednesday, I mean, Daniel, he had lost everything, right? And he humbly served the man who took everything from him. And I think God's calling us into a season of humble service to the very, you know, to the very people who sometimes hate us. So we'll talk about that more, but that's a good point. We're, we'll get there. Okay. Um, Okay, so yes, I like to just throw this up here because it's the most quoted verse in America today. John 3.16 used to be it, right? <laughs> but now it's good, good old Matthew 7.1. Do not judge. Do not judge. Okay, here's the thing. Here's, I think, this verse just like, I like it because it represents our task as we mentor the next generation. Is that they, because they take information in bite-sized bits, 140 characters, or now a picture, or an emoji, right? Often they're not, they're not developing the same critical thinking that prior generations have had, okay? We're seeing in colleges where literally we're reinserting critical thinking into curriculum where we had removed it because students were learning it naturally through high school, but now they're not coming into college with it. So we're having to teach critical thinking. Again, because they're, getting, they're on information overload all the time. So you don't have time to research everything thoroughly or think about things thoroughly. So part of our job as pastors, teachers, mentors is to help them know which things they need to think about deeply, which things are worth delving into. Yes? When you become your own filter and there 
provide that truth myself. Yes, yes. Yes. Yes, you just articulated the whole process beautifully. <laughs> yes, it's true. I mean, the colander, I think, is a good way of um, defining it. Because what we're finding is young people are very good at skimming. They have to, right? But then what determines what gets through that they don't skim? Yeah. So I think one of our challenges then is to push them on what they're actually letting through the filter. Right. Exactly, yes. And which is going back to there's very little reflection or silence in young people's lives today to actually pause and reflect. Yes? Also, this, this particular statement relative to not judging also references the whole idea of not being accountable. Yes. Uh, my other life is corporate training. Yes. Okay. Yep. That's good. Yes, and you're right. You, the, the accountability piece is huge. Because if you actually read through this passage, that's essentially what Jesus is getting at, right? I mean, you need accountability. Don't just tell the other guy to get it better and not fix your own life, but we're to be accountable to one another. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And that, I mean, that just brings up another good point about the power of questions, you know, which has come up a couple times now, which we're going to get to later on. Because, I mean, that's one of the things, relationships is critical, and then within those relationships, asking the right questions to get people thinking uh, the right way. So that's, yeah, that's a great example. Okay, so let's just talk quickly about a couple of challenges. So, again, we mentioned one, just the churches um, that are closing, the, you know, trends with Gen Z. Uh, we saw that from 2015, or from 2007 to 2015, the number of adults uh, who indicated um, that they were Christians dropped by almost 8%, okay, which is a huge drop in that amount of time. Um, meanwhile, in the meantime, almost every major branch of Christianity in the United States has lost a significant number of members. Pew Research found that mainly because millennials are leaving the fold, more than one-third of millennials now say they're unaffiliated with any faith up 10 percentage points since 2007. Okay, this is a challenge, right, for us? Okay, faith trends, like I said, only 4% of Gen Z has a biblical worldview as compared to 10% of boomers. Um, teens are twice as likely as adults to say that they're atheists. 51% of Gen Z say happiness is their ultimate goal in life. Okay, happiness and financial success. Very focused on the now the earthly possessions, okay? Biblical literacy is at an all-time low. 
So if, I mean, we know this, right, in our churches. When we ask people the Ten Commandments, very few Americans can even tell you the Ten Commandments. So biblical literacy is at an all-time low, which then often feels like we're working out of a deficit when we're trying to teach the Bible. We're having to back up farther and farther and teach more of the groundwork. And we live in a post-Christian, post-truth world. These are challenges. They're huge. Okay, yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep, which is another great place to ask questions, right? <laughs> so, right. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. In my jammies, right? <laughs> In my jammies. I can, I can YouTube or podcast my favorite musicians, my favorite sermons, my whatever. So this goes back to the, your point on the back row about relationships. You know, the church, what the church, often in the church we focused on our, our music and our preaching. Those things are important. They're always going to be important. But what we can offer that they can't find on YouTube, right, is the relationships. And so, and the accountability and the questions and all of that. And here's where I want to, like, I, I, that point is well taken. You're absolutely right. It is the number one commandment, right, to love one another. Here's what I want to just challenge us in, going back to this verse, though, okay? Here's where I see a lot of young people who are, like, the ones I'm working with who are strong believers and wanting to pursue God is that they don't have godly accountability in their life that's teaching them to live by biblical principles, Okay? So yes, we need to love them, absolutely. And that's how we're going to draw. They will know you're Christians by your love, right? We absolutely have to love. But then for what I call our remnant, <laughs> our young men and women who are our Daniels, who we see God developing them and building them, we don't let them walk around with planks hanging out of their eyes, right? Because often what, what they understand, this is where we have to be very careful, because millennials and Gen Z can interpret love as just accepting me and letting me do exactly what I want all the time. But that's not love. I do not let my five-year-old girls do what they want to do all the time, because that would not be loving them. Okay? And so for those young people, they need this godly accountability. I, I need you to help me pull the plank out of my eye, and I'm going to help you take the speck out of your eye so that we can walk in God's blessing. Why? We don't, follow these, we don't follow God's rules because he's like a legalistic God up there in the sky. We walk by his rules because there is blessing. He designed it. I, when I have rules for my girls, it's so that they are safe and happy and cared for, right? Don't run out on the street in front of the bus, right? I don't want you to get hit by the bus. So God's rules, but we often, young people don't know that. They don't understand that often. Yes? That's a great question. Simply because all of the numbers that you quoted are correct. Mm-hmm. Until you ship to the global south, mm-hmm. or until you ship to China, mm-hmm. or until you ship to Africa, mm-hmm. where the church is growing. Mm-hmm. So is this, what mm-hmm. we're dealing with, a symptom of Western prosperity mm-hmm. in the first world? Mm-hmm. That is a great question. 
So here's something that's really fascinating. And again, um, some of the statistics are still coming out on this, like with Gen Z and millennials, because research isn't as great in the global south, right, as it is, like we don't do as much research sometimes. But yes, the, the church in the global south is growing, but we are starting to see the trends, um, be it because of technology and globalization, some of the same generational trends are actually global. So I just got back from Mexico where I taught university and high school teachers the same workshops that I teach high school and um, college teachers in the US, the exact same workshop. They're like, you, we are seeing the exact same trends as far as attitudes, perceptions, beliefs. I just got back from Cambodia where there were um, leaders from four different Asian countries who said they are seeing a lot of the same trends among their youth. Now we don't have as much hard research yet on some, some demographics, but we're, there seems to be a trend at least of like the generational attitudes and perspectives that because of technology and globalization are starting to transmit. Now that's not necessarily a real positive thing. And how it's gonna play out, I don't know. But I think as far as the church is concerned, yes, we have, because of the, being first world, more affluent, we've been able to very much structure and strip some of the emotion and story, I think, out of our faith a little bit more. I mean, this comes from a missionary kid who grew up in Mexico, right? Emotion, story, experience was very much a part of the faith experience that I experienced growing up. When I came to the church in America, I was very shocked. It's like, aren't people excited to be at church? <laughs> you know? So, um, so yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think that there is a di dynamic of that, but I also think there's start, we're starting to see a trend that worries me that there might be an effect on the global um, way that this plays out. Yes. Sí. Pienso que una de las cosas que está pasando en esta época, más que cualquier otra, es que se han desdibujado los límites. Y al desdibujarse los límites, hay un mayor riesgo dentro de todos nuestros jóvenes que están viviendo. Hoy día por eso se hacen más locuras para ser rico, porque es la mentalidad tener dinero, tener una posición y tener fama. Y esto es muy poco popular lo que estamos viviendo hoy día. Entonces yo pienso que la iglesia sí debe ser un catalizador bien importante en donde sea un referente para la generación que está viviendo hoy día. De una manera más de decir, de hablar y de exponer, sino de una manera vivencial. Que ellos puedan ver lo escrito en nosotros. Amén. Amén, hermano. Predica, predica. Okay, you should get up here and preach. No, this is good. He's talking about how in this era, you know, I mean, boundaries and lines are blurring so much. And it's very confusing for young people to try to navigate this context. And like, what he's saying is, our lives really need to live out the truth. Our lives need to preach the truth. And, you know, often people will say to me, what is the best curriculum that we can use in developing youth or pastors, you know, um, or uh, leaders, young leaders. I'm like, your, your life. Your life is the best curriculum. See, see, that you can imitate it. Yes, that they can imitate your life. And here's what we find is often when we look at all these trends, young people are looking at us and they're like, the church is going, oh, it's terrible. The sky is falling, right? Chicken little. <laughs> okay. And they're like, well, I don't need more of that. I see that everywhere I go. The leaders that I see that are magnetic for young people, who are never at a loss for young people around them, are the ones who are full of hope, right? Who are living out the truth of the gospel in a way that's worthy to be imitated. You know, that, because then it's real, it's experiential, it's a story that they can see lived out in front of them.
of what the gospel means. So I absolutely agree. I think that's powerful. Yes, sir. Yes, that's good. So, yep. Empathy, tolerance, acceptance, love, these are all the buzzwords of this generation. So if we exude that coming from a solidly theological, Jesus-centered perspective, we create an irresistible environment where people come in, they experience the love, Can you see how God could be using this to bring us all just to that very thing? Right? I mean, when you think about it, if I can't rely on my curriculum, my Bible study curriculum, I mean, I have a, I have a Bible study of millennial young ladies, right? I mean, once in a while we discuss the book. <laughs> but a lot of times we just discuss life. And if they experience me or us, as like a hopeful, positive, even in the midst of struggle and difficulty, having hope, having faith, having purpose, that's attractional, right? And then when I say, God has blessed me in this way because I have followed his commands, I have listened to his word, I have believed and stood on his truth, that then is a way to project that message or share that message in a powerful way. Yes, in the back row and then right here. That's really good. And I think for us, then the challenge comes in. We have to endure and persevere a little bit in relationships more than we might have in the past. Like I think of some of the young millennial women that I've mentored who have stood me up when I'm paying a babysitter and have a few other things to do in my life, you know, or, or whatever. But do we continue to come back and how do we demonstrate that love? I think we have to we have, to have a little bit more perseverance in some of those relationships. Okay, right here, and then I'm going to finish up my slide. Yes, and I think one of the big challenges, so let's talk about the opportunities then, because I think there's some really good opportunities, and one of them comes back to what you're saying. Often we've relied, because in America, a large percentage of people came into churches on Sunday mornings, we relied a lot on Sunday mornings. Okay? We relied on, you know, and for us as, as ministers, this is good news, right? Because a lot of times people put a lot of weight on us, <laughs> right? The bringing their friends in or how, inviting the neighbors, and now the pastor's going to tell them what's true. Well, now God is saying, 
they're not all coming in the church doors. Some people are never going to come in the church doors. But that means we have to be faithful to tell our testimony, all of us, everywhere we go, right? Because they may never step into a church door. But if our testimony is alive and well in our life, so I think part of our challenge becomes equipping the people around us to do that, to take it outside of the church walls. And how do you share your testimony in a real and powerful way? Build relationships, ask questions, show love, right? Outside of these four walls. Um, and then we're going to pray that they come in, you know, but we're going to take it out there first. Yes. Well, and I think people can feel that. Going back to your point, the thing I find with millennials is they're really good at detecting authenticity. So this, this is where I really feel like this cultural transition is a, I mean, I can just see what God is doing <laughs> in his body as we go through this. Because he's like, I know that I can teach a really good, uh, you know, I, I teach Sunday school. I can teach a really good lesson in Sunday school having just screamed at my kids, my husband, done all kinds of things that I shouldn't have done, right? And I can put on my game face and present it, but millennials can tell if I'm not living it. Okay, so now, talk about accountability. I now have accountability to live what I am teaching to a whole new level because they're going to be able to discern if I'm not living it, right? So I think this is one of the amazing things that God is doing in this season. Phyllis Tickle, who's done a lot of research on churches, she says, arguably one of the most potentially destructive things that can happen to faith is for it to become the accepted and established religion of the political, cultural, and social unit in which its adherents live. Because then it becomes part of the program, right? And it's expected. And we expect politicians to go to church on Sunday. And we expect people to like pray before you know, their meals. Or we expect these certain, at, at committee meetings. We expect these things but they're not always coming from the heart. It's just part of the program. So what a cultural shaking allows is for us to figure out who's there with their whole heart. Who's doing it because it's their whole heart. And you know it's sincere when there's a risk involved, right? If there's a risk of being ostracized or losing your friends or being labeled in some way or losing even business or whatever it might be because of your faith, and you continue to proclaim your faith, then that's a pretty good indicator that it's sincere, right? And so I believe God's kind of shaking off some of the things that have kind of gotten mixed in where the culture and our faith have kind of gotten meshed together. He's trying to shake off some of the culture and remind us what is our faith, what is sincere. Yes? Right. So even when we model authenticity, mm -hmm. there's that extra layer that you've got to get through. So it takes twice as long mm -hmm. to have that kid realize there mm -hmm. is an agenda. Right. You really do love me. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, I mean, what I think gets discouraging about this, it can get discouraging, is that, like you're saying, it takes a lot more time, a lot more energy, a lot more effort, right? To, like, convey love and to get into people's lives and to minister, which can feel exhausting. 
But if we don't have as many people, right, then we have time to pour a little bit more into the people we have. So what I believe God's really asking us to do in this season is to make sure if we do have three or four young people in our church, often what we're focused on is we only have three or four young people in our church. Yes. <laughs> well, if they're going to all need love and mentoring and encouragement and asking questions, praise God you only have three or four, right? Because <laughs> if you had 20, it would be exhausting. Okay, if you have one, then, you know, you start to show love and sincerity to that young person, develop them, it can grow. So I think um, it is going to be, it's going to be an interesting season of ministry. At this time, I love this verse. I'll just kind of wrap up and then we'll do a few more questions. He says, Hebrews 12, this has become like my theme verse. As I study this, I've been studying this for about 15 years now. And I do have to admit, at one point I said I'm not bringing children into this mess. <laughs> because I'm watching what's happening in history and culture. I'm like, how in the world do you raise kids today? You know, and then my mom said, oh, yes, you will bring children into the world. <laughs> yes. yes, mother. Okay, so, um, but this has been a verse that God has used to encourage me greatly. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So here's one of the things that God's been doing in my life personally through all of this, is when I'm watching the news, or lit, talking to a young person, or having a conversation, I start to feel that like, you know the feeling I'm talking about, that like anxiety and frustration and anger start to bubble up inside of me. I have to pause and I have to say, now is that coming from a holy anger, right? Or is it something about my personality, my interest, my worldview, my perspective, something that's not biblical, that's annoying me? That is shakeable, right? Because if it's just based on my, if, if I'm getting frustrated and upset about something because like my toes are getting stepped on, okay, that's, that's fine, there's legitimate, we're humans, we're going to have natural responses, but that's something I need to take to the throne, right? And in my prayer closet, I need to surrender to the Lord. If it's something that's biblical, then that is something I'm like, okay, God, then how do I take this? and live this out in this culture? How do I move this? And I think God's allowing the shaking to occur to say, okay, I want you to search your hearts and see where is what you're feeling of me and where is what you're feeling or you're responding to maybe of the culture that's around you or that's informed your perspectives. Because here's the thing. If we can get the older generations and the younger generations in the church down to the basics again, whew, that's pretty unstoppable. If we can get back to the unshakable kingdom of God, whew, that is powerful, right? And true Christ followers of all ages are going to be able to agree on that, the unshakable kingdom. And so I feel like that's one of our, our hopes and our goals in this season is to allow God to search our hearts and to also just be able to like kind of, you know, God's doing a little shaking of his own to see Who's going to stick with me through this? Who's, who is willing to embrace the unshakable kingdom regardless of what it costs? Okay, I want to leave some time for Q&A, so I might just skip these slides. Um, questions? Any questions as we wrap up? Yes. 
Yes. Yes. Yes, you're hitting on a great point. There's a lot of contradictions in millennials, and part of it is because they, millennials represent the shifting in culture, right? So, but the other thing that I think is so hopeful about it is because, yes, they want to define truth as far as what it means for them, but they do have a hunger. We all have a hunger to know what is actual accurate, right? What is actually real and true. So this is where, going back to your example of are you thirsty, I think there's going to rise in our culture like as we start to realize our own self-defined truths are not all they're cracked up to be, that there's going to be this thirst that we see in the things like fact-checking that we're going to start to see on the spiritual level of what is really true at the spiritual level. And that's where we need to have the remnant, you know, the young people who know truth and that they can share it. They can be the seed or the missionaries. Okay, there was a question in the back, and then we'll come back up here. Yeah, go ahead. Right. I think that's a really, really good distinction that you made. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about with participation and engagement. You know, like if they can participate and engage versus having someone just tell them the truth, they want to participate and engage in that journey. So yes, I think if you see that in young people around you, that's a great, a wonderful opportunity to be able to walk with them in that. So yeah, great. Thanks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you're bringing up a really interesting point because what we're starting to see, I, I do cross-cultural communications um, seminars as well, and what we're starting to see is that with postmodernism, there's actually a blending of Western and Eastern cultures. So um, it's a very interesting dynamic, which we don't have time to get into tonight, but yes, you're hitting on There is some blending, and it goes back to the globalization, the technology, um, and how there is emerging a global youth culture. 
Um, so it's very fascinating. How that will all unfold, we're not sure. But um, someone else over here, does someone have a question? Yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. I honestly think that it's people upset that Christianity has lost its cultural dominance mm -hmm. and desperate for any marketing plan to get that cultural dominance mm -hmm. back. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's where we probably have a lot that we can take from Anabaptist type of mm -hmm. drugs and, mm -hmm. and teaching that returns us back to a simple living out of the scripture. Yeah. And so one thing that I kind of want to push back from this is I question sometimes how helpful it is I know I, I think you're absolutely right and if, can everybody hear him like when he's talking he's just talking about how he, uh, I mean you, you kind of were talking about how part of the angst that we feel is this losing Christianity losing its cultural dominance and you know how much you can't again I want I want to agree with you that you can't just lump all Millennials together the way you can't lump all you know I mean growing up in Mexico all Mexicans together you can't lump all older people together you can't gr lump a group of people together and yet there are some trends that you see that can help you understand. And so tomorrow we're going to talk more about how the context in which millennials have grown up in has affected their worldview um, that's a little bit different than older generations. Now, I want to speak to the fact that I do think some of the angst, we like to blame things on generational trends sometimes, millennials or whatever, when it is a cultural trend, which is why I like to talk about this, okay? And the loss of cultural dominance of Christianity in America is something that people, a lot of people are grieving. And yet, I think it is part of what God is using, too. God has used Christianity in America in, in many ways, but now he's going to use the loss of Christianity having dominance in many ways. Okay? God used Nebuchadnezzar, the same, and he used King David. Okay? So God uses the people that he chooses, and we, just, we don't get to dictate where we fall in history. right? So, but that goes back to my point of saying, when we feel the shaking and the angst, to be able to say, do I feel this because it's against scripture or because it makes me feel uncomfortable because it's a changing norm, right? Um, and, and the fact is that if it's just a changing norm, then we need to ask God to help us figure out how to navigate that. If it's something biblical, then that's, that's different. Okay, I want to respect because I know we're, we need to wrap up at 830. Um, I'll hang around up here, so if you have specific questions, go ahead and come talk to me, but I'm going to turn it over to Greg, and I'll be back tomorrow. I'll also be back at the booth, so come visit me. That's pretty good. Um, I heard a lot of the similar things when I was I was at the same conference as, as Robin when we met Jolene the first time. Uh, I think my favorite quote was, uh, "Why are we doing this? Could it be that God told us to do it this way 20 years and we have not checked back since then?" Um, that's pretty good. Um, let's just take a moment of silence. Maybe close your eyes. Stare at a point up on the altar here. Just kind of absorb where we've been for the last 90 minutes or so.